This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Good. We're rolling. Hey, what's up, everybody? Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time frame you find yourself in. We've got a really special episode uh, of the Alert Medic One podcast tonight. We have Dr. Zav Kassam from Philly. He's going to talk to us about uh, some trauma stuff. Uh, Doc, why don't you uh, go ahead and give us a quick, a quick background? You know, kind of where you're, where you're at, where you came from, and and what are you into these days? Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, a bunch for having me. It's uh, really great to be on the podcast uh, and uh, talking about stuff that uh, everybody on this uh, group is interested in. Uh, so I've uh, had kind of a uh, non-military, military brat type uh, upbringing. I've grown up all over the world, uh, trained in England before coming over to the States. Um, and in England, I was really involved with a lot of operational uh, uh, EMS as an EMS physician. Uh, I came over to the States, was in Baltimore for a while, did my uh, uh, surgical critical care fellowship at shock trauma. Um, and uh, combining that with my emergency medicine background, I uh, do uh, both emergency medicine and uh, surgical critical care up in uh, Philadelphia at uh, University of Penn now. So. That's uh, kind of my training background and uh, my professional interests really revolve around uh, trauma care, um, trying to improve outcomes in particular, trying to bridge that gap from uh, scene all the way to the ICU and what we can bring uh, to the patient, uh, you know, making these uh, tiny marginal gains to improve outcomes for our patients. Excellent. Excellent. You know, so to, uh, to, to kick off that conversation, um, I'll start with this. Uh, you know, most of us know that kind of by the end of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, our casualty survival rate was what, something like 96, 97%, depending on which paper you read. Meaning that, you know, if you were a soldier wounded in combat, you know, particularly in the Ranger regiments, right? That's where most of our data was coming from. You had a really good chance of making it home. Uh, you know, there was a directive for, that came down from strategic commands to kind of to focus on reducing preventable death on the battlefield to zero um if at all possible and the one and they seem to seemingly the military seemed to have conquered that problem with a couple of exceptions um i think the one thing that they they just couldn't get over was non-compressible torso hemorrhage right and uh we may be and we're seeing this you know the same thing in the in the, EM, in the civilian ems world and it accounts for a significant portion of that that uh three or 4% of combat fatalities, which of which neuro injuries and complex blast, blast trauma and all that other stuff uh, comes from, you know, the same kind of rings true in civilian EMS, you know, civilian trauma systems can only, we can only hope to touch 97% survival, right? Um, we have a, a completely different patient population, completely different mechanisms of injury uh, and whatnot, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, doc, but there's a similar 
directive. I don't want to use that word, but there's a similar push uh, to focus on zero preventable deaths from trauma in the civilian world. And we seem to face the same seemingly unconquerable hurdle of non-compressible torso hemorrhage. And, you know, I, I'm going to kick it over to you with a question of, you know, so what is preventable death and, and what are we doing? What's, what do we have in place now to accomplish this? And what, what is EMS doing to have the largest impact on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think uh, one that really continues to vex uh, anybody who's involved in uh, pre-hospital and in-hospital trauma care. So you're quite right. It's, um, you know, when you're talking about uh, deaths, there's some deaths that you just can't do anything about. And those are typically the ones that uh, have some sort of massive injury and will typically die on scene within seconds or minutes of, of the event happening. And, uh, um, you know, there's Things like, you know, they'll have, you know, say, a massive aortic disruption or something like that, that they just can't survive no matter what you do. So those are non-preventable deaths um, just from the injury mechanism. Now, preventable deaths are patients who I, I think about them as patients that shouldn't die. Um, there's uh, They are almost giving you the opportunity to save them. You failing to save them ends up causing their deaths. And so they have may be bleeding in areas that are challenging to address, but potentially can be addressed. Um, and uh, we have to figure out a way to be able to get the care that they need to them fast enough for uh, that to improve outcomes. And this was really looked at kind of around the time of the um, uh, shootings up in uh, Connecticut, where the, the, uh, the school was shot up. Uh, a lot of kids ended up dying. And there was real initiative to kind of move uh, some of the lessons that were being used in the military out into the civilian world. And this kind of brought the uh, Stop the Lead campaign. It brought uh, tourniquet use into pre-hospital um, care and even in-hospital care uh, for injuries that were amenable to tourniquets. Um, and it also kind of spurred a, a paper that came out from the National Academies of Science that showed that in uh, if they looked at the data for 2014, so almost 10 years ago now, um, there was about a 20% potentially preventable death rate that they found. And, and the majority hmm. of those were from hemorrhage. Um, and actually, you know, the number and uh, the percentage may be a little bit higher. There's other papers that kind of quote closer to 30%. Um, and, uh, and so if you think about that, that's about one in three of every severely injured patient that has a potentially preventable problem that uh, really shouldn't be dying. And who are those people who are, who will typically die? Unfortunately, you know, they're usually young, uh, often the breadwinners in their communities or their families who now, uh, for one reason or the other, have faced some calamity and um, end up dying from it um, when, you know, if we maybe look at things differently or approach their uh, their injury differently, they would have survived. And so that's really kind of been uh, a big paradigm shift in our thinking over the last 10 years. How do we address that bleeding? So where's that bleeding coming from? Sure, we talked about head injuries. Head injuries are still really challenging to address. And I think even in the military, you know, if uh, uh, soldiers who, who were uh, suffering from devastating traumatic brain injuries, you know, they didn't do well. Um, and civilian world is the same, you know, massive head injuries, such a variable outcome on them. Uh, so put them to one side. But the other group that we 
really need to focus on are those with what's called non-compressible hemorrhage. So uh, if you look at, say, tourniquet use, so those are typically applied to extremities where uh, really you could put direct pressure on those compressible sites and then is, are essentially kind of stopping the blood flow to those compressible sites. But the non-compressible areas are areas like the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, where you can't put a tourniquet on and it's very difficult to apply direct pressure to. And those are the sites where bleeding can be really challenging. It can be really fast and it causes uh, death fairly early um, if you don't control it. So that's kind of in the focus of, of uh, a lot of uh, work in uh, both in hospital and pre-hospital work in the civilian side. So is it a, would you say that we have a time problem or we have a uh, resources equipment tool? Do we have a, a silver bullet problem? Uh, all of the above. And um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, it brings to focus um, the challenge uh, and the difference from, you know, what you do in the military, where even though you have um, uh, three or four major branches, um, really, you know, there's uh, some crosstalk. And generally, if, if one branch says do things one way, that whole branch will do things that way. And um, then you look at EMS in U.S. civilian practice and, you know, in Philadelphia, they'll do things one way uh, out in the burbs just a few miles from here. They'll have different protocols and do things differently and they'll have a different experience. And, and that's the real challenge, I think, um, logistically of being able to kind of drop uh, a blanket uh, protocol or approach to being able to address this. Uh, so that's the first thing. The other thing I think uh, you hit on was time. And it is uh, certainly um, a lot faster that these patients are dying from non-compressible hemorrhage. So typically we say the majority of deaths in the first 24 hours from trauma occur from hemorrhage, but those from non-compressible sites really happen much earlier. Um, uh, some papers have put it like the first six hours but there was a really neat paper where um, it kind of in the title really uh, highlighted that time is the enemy. And they looked at patients who had high grade torso injuries, and they actually showed that there was a significant challenge um, uh, or change rather in uh, the mortality uh, rates beyond about 15 to 20 minutes from injury. Um, and so something needs to happen really at point of care in a lot of systems because 15 to 20 minutes is usually these patients are still outside the hospital and so in most systems and so it uh, requires us to kind of think about what we're doing close to point of injury in the pre-hospital setting to kind of change uh, uh, the outcome and move the needle on that group of patients. So on that topic I'm going to share my screen and bring up this graphic which I, I think every every emergency medicine individual and EMS individual needs to needs to see uh, from your from your paper. Um, if I can figure this out, I'm just going to share my entire screen. Yeah, so if you go to uh, it, it might if you have a tab open, it does let you pick a tab. Boom, perfect. Got it. All right, so you guys are seeing this paper, I probably should zoom in just a touch or two. Doc, can you unpack? Oh, ooh, that's too close. 
my fault. Doc, can you <laughs> unpack this a little bit for us? And I, I think it brings, I, I, th- I really think it brings to the forefront kind of the gravity of the situation that we have as far as time. You made a really, a point that stuck with me from FAST last year of that sometimes these patients are have continuous bleeding for up to two hours from their, yeah. from their time of injury. Uh, wow. I mean, that, that, if that doesn't get your attention, I, don't, I just don't think you're human. So yeah. I, I take it away. Yeah, totally. So basically, this kind of lays out the uh, the timeline from injury to definitive care uh, in the hospital, which typically in the operating room or uh, sometimes in the interventional radiology suite. So, you know, usually the, the you know, the, the patient's injured. Uh, there's a time period where 911 is activated and the response time, a scene time and then package and transport evaluation in the emergency department and then moving on to uh, definitive care in the operating room. And so the way a lot of uh, trauma systems are created around the United States is that um, there's such been such a, a mentality, especially I would say for like penetrating trauma that you should just grab these patients and run to the nearest uh, uh, appropriate trauma center and then they'll get all the care there. Um, but in reality, we, you know, anybody who works in pre-hospital care knows that, you know, there's a lot of time that you uh, sometimes don't account for. It's not just how to get from point A to point B, but you arrive on scene, maybe the scene's a little dangerous. You have to um, uh, identify where the patient is, get to the patient, do your evaluation. Packaging takes time. Uh, loading takes time, especially if you're in, air, in an airframe, maybe the LZs. Mm-hmm a little bit further from the actual accident scene. Um, and then you have to take off and land and offload at the hospital. And all those time factors are never kind of put into that A to B transport. Oh yeah, the transport time is only like 15 minutes. Actually, yeah, but another 10 minutes gets added because you have to do all these other things. And then they come down to the emergency department, they get evaluated, another uh, X amount of time passes before they get to the operating room. So all this time, these patients are bleeding because nobody's taking care of kind of arresting that hemorrhage. Um, you know, and the way a lot of systems uh, have been, you know, not even advanced interventions like we'll talk about in a sec, like um, restoring blood volume uh, are happening in the in the pre-hospital setting in a lot of these systems. And so you have to wait to the hospital. And so when um, Holcomb kind of looked at these uh, trauma systems across the United States, saw that the median time to be able to get the, these patients from point of injury to their definitive hemorrhage control was approaching two hours. And so all this time, these patients are continuing to bleed. And so it's no wonder that, you know, outcomes, especially for patients with non-compressible torso hemorrhage, have not really changed in uh, decades. Um, despite all these fancy things we hear about in the hospital, sure, it's good for patients who come into the hospital and they're not in shock. But when you look at the data for patients who arrive in hemorrhagic shock, their outcomes haven't changed, despite all these gadgets and, and gizmos that we have now in the hospital. And so that should really put you into focus, right? That, you know, there's the yeah. system really isn't designed to get these people quickly to definitive, uh, to like definitive care that they need. It's, um, and, and that's where we need to kind of look at what we need to do to change to improve outcomes. Yeah, you know, correct Doc, me if I'm wrong. Go ahead, Josh. So it, it's interesting you bring up this timeline because this is like so crucial. This is something that, like Cody said, this needs, like if if you're watching this, 
pulling up on your Spotify, watch this section right here with this graphic shared on YouTube, wherever you are. Take a look at this because I think a lot of providers, clinicians don't understand the amount of time that is from point of injury to definitive care. We always think about the transport time, transport time, transport time, transport time. And it, it was pervasive in my agency, actually, when we were talking about uh, early on, and we're about to hit to the point where blood is hitting the streets in my agency. But, you know, four or five years ago, when I was talking to the guys, they're like, well, you know, we have a trauma center within the county. You know, most people can get there within 15, 20 minutes. What they weren't taking into consideration is the time on scene, the time getting to the scene, the time from the point of injury to the to 911 initiation. and just not even looking at the time to scene, time to call, all this stuff, we were looking at a median like 35 to 40 minutes from contact to handoff at the hospital. And that's a lot of time not getting the definitive care, not getting blood, not getting resuscitated properly, not stopping those bleeders. And that's the portion that we as providers, as EMS clinicians are in control of. Everything after handoff, we don't have control, but if we can shorten the time from where we make contact to handoff, it shortens that time. It, it all scrunches. It all compensates down the way, and we're able to lessen that amount of time. And correct me if I'm wrong, Doc, I, I could have sworn there was a study out there within the past 10 years that studied how long at a, at a specific trauma center, I don't know which one, it took for blood to go from the bank to the patient's side. And I think they said it was like an average of like 30 to 40 minutes from point of activation to point of blood going into the patient. So we're not even talking about going to the OR. We're just talking about resuscitation in the trauma bay. So Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, um, it, it does. It's, uh, if you don't have like blood available in the emergency department, then it does take that because they'll need some sort of uh, uh, record of the patient, even if they release um, uh, uncross-matched blood, they still need some form of uh, a record where they need to document that for their safety purposes. So it does take a while. And oftentimes, you know, the blood bank is not anywhere close to the emergency department. So that travel time is is important. And I, I remember talking about this when um, we were we were thinking about bringing another intervention into our hospital. And people didn't understand this time factor. And they they were always going, you know, we're you know, the operating rooms right here. We can get from the emergency department to the operating room in like less than ten minutes, and go, okay, let's try it. So we set up a, a simulation. We put a mannequin on uh, the stretcher who was hooked up to all the monitors, and um, and we said, okay, let's bring this person to the OR. And actually, you know, by the time they transferred the monitors to the transport monitor and the nurses got ready and they got their documentation and they moved and they called the elevator, et cetera. Actually, it takes much longer than people think to be able to do that. And that's kind of a nice uh, comparison that you can uh, say to people who don't know the pre-hospital world that, you know, we do, we have to do similar things in the field uh, just in different ways, but the concept's the same, that it takes much longer. It's not just traveling from A to B, it's all the other things. So if, if time, time seems to be our enemy here, right? Yeah. And we, we know that, and this is, this was studied both, this has been studied both in the civilian and in the military sectors. We know that scoop and run really is not helpful. It's not as helpful as we think it is. It's the, this mentality of, well, if time is the enemy, then let's, let's just, let's just get there faster. And it, what's, what happens in that transport phase, or at least from, from arrival to, 
drop off is really what's what's super important, correct? Totally. And that, yeah. and that um that mortality rate from hemorrhagic shock, that's something what like 20, 21%, I believe, something close to that. How do we make that time work for us? You know, it's like I look at it like being stuck in traffic and you could sit there and be mad that you're stuck in traffic or you could do something, listen to a podcast per se and and make that commute work for you. So how do we make that commute from the point of injury to the ED? How do we make that work for the patient? How can we influence? We can't control the time to Josh's point. We can't control what happens after drop off, but we could do some stuff before drop off that may influence things later on, correct? Yeah, totally. And I think, um, you know, when, when people try to think about uh, making uh, change, they I think they take the strategy a, a little bit the wrong way because they'll say, okay, well, we have a trauma system. Maybe we have to change the whole trauma system to make things better. But actually, you don't. You have to break down your system from point of injury to definitive care and look at, you know, how can we change maybe even one or two or three things in it? Because shaving off a few minutes here, there could actually like improve things in the in the longer term. And that's a concept that kind of came out of um, uh, bike racing that's uh, called the concept of achieving marginal gains. And so if you shave off a second here, a second there, your biker uh, wins the race as opposed to coming in second. Um, so where do you do that in in the the journey that the patient is taking, right? Um, so probably you can look at that that time period where the incident happens and 911 is activated. Um, and so the you know that can be variable, right? So when does somebody realize that somebody's injured, and then how soon can they get to a call? You know, it used to be you have to find a phone booth, but now everybody's got a cell phone, so they can call 911 right away. But then what happens in that time period, that five, six, eight, 10 minutes that it then takes for uh, a dispatch ambulance to, to get to the scene? So, you know, civilians learning to do a basic hemorrhage control techniques is, is certainly one part that you can change. And really focusing on your community to be able to teach those skills, um, like through programs like Stop the Bleed and other things, um, similar to what we did for medical cardiac arrest where we've encouraged bystander CPR and certainly those communities that have taken that up have shown um, improved outcomes. So that's kind of one step where you can achieve some gains. So um, your concept of spontaneous responders, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, I, I give credit to my colleague, Christina uh, uh, Hernan, who was uh, one of the uh, uh, physicians at the Boston Marathon bombing. And she was really taken aback by the fact that she really uh, struggled with what to do in that time period, you know, because, um, you know, what do you, everybody kind of, the way she tells it is like, everybody teaches you on these life support courses, you know, you have to wait for the scene to be safe or assess the scene to be safe, but clearly the scene was not safe at that time. And so people are dying in that time period. So what can you do? And, and she's really kind of uh, pushed that concept forward. Um, so that's one thing that you can do, and that involves um, kind of investing in your community and and seeing what you can do uh, to teach lay people how to um, how to respond in these in these circumstances. Um, and then the second one is, uh, you know, can you provide meaningful intervention in that time period? You know, the the time that you have to transport, uh, say, crossing a physical distance, you, you can't really 
do much about that or change a lot about that because that's just the geography. And certainly in the United States and some, some parts of the United States, that might be a lot more challenging. And that's just not just if you're in a rural community, it could be if you're in a dense urban environment, you know, you face a lot of traffic, even on lights and sirens, you still struggle to get to the hospital. Um, so what can you do in, in that setting? And that's where you can address the shock state. And so what, what do we do in the hospital to address the shock state? Well, we administer blood instead of um, crystalloid, and we try and use means to stop hemorrhage. Um, and so what will that work working in the, in the pre-hospital setting? We're starting to see more and more evidence to support the use of pre-hospital blood. And there's programs that are uh, internationally out there as well as here in the United States that have clearly shown the feasibility of bringing blood into the pre-hospital setting. So you're uh, addressing the shock state, which is a big part of uh, contributor mortality. The longer you leave these patients in the shock state, the more likely that shock is gonna be irreversible by the time they get to um, the hospital. And we've, we've seen those patients, right? They, we seem to be able to do everything right for them, but they still die um, in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And that's because their shock has gotten to the point that no matter what you do at that point, they're not going to survive. So bringing blood pre-hospital is one huge, I think, low-hanging fruit that we can do uh, and that systems are already doing now uh, to, uh, to provide meaningful intervention en route to the hospital. What else can you do? We talked, uh, you know, several systems about decompressing, uh, tension pneumothoraces, uh, putting tourniquets certainly on uh, compressible sites of hemorrhage, but also using things like these new hemostatic gauzes that have come out from the military to pack wounds, and that can be used in gunshot wound tracks or, or stab wound tracks. You can pack those wounds. Not all services are doing that. That's a simple way that you can provide a meaningful intervention for hemorrhage control in like um, areas like the abdomen, et cetera. And then you talk about more fancy stuff, um, uh, such as compression devices for abdominal hemorrhage. So they have things like the abdominal junctional tourniquet, um, and then even fancier uh, uh, things like uh, Reboa, which uh, in the US hasn't really come to light, but probably the London Air Ambulance Service, probably the one that comes to mind to most people of bringing that intervention closer to the point of injury to provide temporary hemorrhage control while they get to the hospital. Um, so the, the question is not that you stop taking people quickly to the hospital, so you still want to maintain that trajectory because you ultimately have to get them to a surgical uh, capability to be able to provide definitive hemorrhage control. But the point that we put in the paper is that en route, you can do uh, a fair amount of stuff that will provide meaningful intervention to that patient and may just improve their outcomes. Um, and that's what we changed the term scoop and run to scoop and control, where we're actually still maintaining that trajectory, but controlling some processes in the dying process to um, prevent uh, poor outcomes. I'm right now with down, scoop and control. <laughs> so Doc, I have uh, maybe a devil's advocate uh, question here. And while I completely support everything you're saying, I just want to kind of maybe head off maybe some of the listeners and some of the followers that may, ha may bring up 
a uh, certain piece of this. Uh, the scoop and run. Now you're from the Philly area, and the Philly area is famous for uh, saying that more trauma patients survive getting thrown in the back of a cop uh, squad car and dropped off at the ER or at the trauma center. Can you speak to that in the scoop and run mentality? Because I know there's some people that are pretty diehard on that statement, the statistics. So, yeah. So, uh, really unique uh, to probably the whole United States. Uh, Philly is probably the the highest volume place where the police actually in their in their manual have it uh, written that if they come across a scene of a penetrating trauma, trauma. then they should uh, transport that patient immediately to the nearest trauma center. But let's look at that a little bit closer. So um, the uh, layout of Philly. So uh, we're, uh, we're in the top 10 in terms of population uh, in the United States, but we have for our population, we have four adult level one trauma centers and uh, two pediatric trauma centers. So probably uh, I'd say a few more than we actually need, but nevertheless, they're there and they're scattered strategically around the city so that you're never really super far from uh, a point of injury. So that's one thing in our geography. Um, and then number two, it's uh, a lot of times where we're situated can be pretty close to the scene of uh, the incident that's happened. So the shooting or the stabbing. And so um, the uh, the way that um, 911 calls happen in the uh, Philly area is that the police dispatch will initially get the call and then they'll transfer that to uh, fire rescue if, uh, if it's primarily medical. And so the information gets to police first. Um, and so if they are aware of that, they'll immediately dispatch. And so they'll often be at the scene before medics have been perhaps even dispatched. Um, and so uh, for them, being not being able to provide any additional intervention to bring those folk immediately to the nearest trauma center because of the geography, they're usually not uh, more than five, six minutes away. And so in, in some ways, it makes sense for them to do that. And and in systems where, you know, the or or an incident happens just, a you know, a block away from the hospital, probably it's better just to bring them quickly to the hospital and continue care there rather than work them on scene. Um, but that's not the reality in, in most places around the United States, right? So a lot of places will have one level one trauma center, perhaps for their um, immediate area. A lot of places are well over, you know, 45 minutes away from a level one trauma center. And that's the reality uh, of the way that uh, trauma systems and trauma centers have been set up in the United States. You know, you look at some of the Midwest and the Northwest states, and there is a huge uh, ge geographical challenges there. So clearly a cop is not going to help out there to bring that patient to the scene. So I think, you know, going back to how disparate EMS systems are around the United States, um, we can't use a one-size-fits-all model. Now, having said that, so let's look at New Orleans. So New Orleans has been, for the last year or two, have uh, gotten their medics to give pre-hospital blood. And a lot of challenge came to that where they said, well, you're an urban center, you're seeing penetrating trauma, there's a level one trauma center that's right in the city. Um, and so why not just you, you know, you should be doing scoop and run for that. So they decided, okay, well, you know, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna give blood and uh, let's see what happens. And um, 
they uh, are a real lesson in achieving marginal gains, I think, because they decided that they would set up a system where they would have, um, uh, they would respond to their penetrating traumas and they would, if they met certain criteria of them being in shock, they would administer one or two units of, blood, of uh, red cells, I think they were using at the time. Um, and so uh, they looked at the data and they found that um, once they'd implemented it, their mortality in an urban trauma system for penetrating trauma was uh, reduced um, as compared to before. And in fact, um, you know, when you talked about the time it takes from for blood to come from the blood bank down to the ED, they showed that even though their scene time was a little bit longer, the, the actual time of them having started their meaningful intervention was shorter, even in, including that longer scene time, was shorter than if the patient had arrived to the hospital and then waited to get the unit of blood from the blood bank. So that's, again, kind of understanding the logistics of EMS world um, and what it involves in seeing. But remember, you know, the factor that you can't change is the distance, but the factor that you can change is what you do in that distance. And so they decided that they're going to give blood early to that and have actually moved the needle significantly on their mortality. So I would say that's like flies in the face of this whole uh, scoop and run uh, for penetrating trauma in an urban trauma system. So I, I'll use them as an example there. That that makes complete sense, by the way, Doc. I, I mean, like, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to not see how you are getting those actual marginal gains because if you're bringing a patient that's properly or at least the beginnings of a proper resuscitation using the the blood uh, packed red blood cells whatever you are using it cuts down on what the trauma bay or trauma team has to do because you're already starting them out at like a couple steps above where you already where you were you know a year before when you weren't doing this totally and, you know, uh, San Antonio, San Antonio is, I'd say the model for when it comes to implementing blood. Everyone probably knows that by now. Uh, but they're also an urban EMS system. Yes, they do have rural parts uh, and they, you know, work with Bear County and other counties and they're rural and they have blood as well. But they started, they started urban. Uh, they've got two major level ones in the city, uh, you know, very famous ones. And they were seeing immediate returns as well. Treating on scene with the blood, bringing this proper, this at least proper, you know, begin, beginnings of a proper resuscitated patient, and you know, surprise, surprise, you're making up time, even yeah. though you spent a little bit more time on scene doing something, you're making up time on another portion, and that marginal gains, yeah, that, that should be the title, right. marginal gains in trauma resuscitation. <laughs> Right, exactly. And remember, you know, a lot of the papers that looked at, um, you know, whether you should be doing more in the field or not, we're still administering like large volumes of crystalloid. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you know, they're not uh, giving the right product. But now that we've evolved in our commerce station in general, you know, we should be running those trials again to see And New Orleans is already kind of showing that uh, like as a before and after kind of thing. And so other systems can uh, certainly bring that in. And I think, you know, of all the interventions that are out there, I think um, administering blood pre-hospital is something that a lot of systems can um, overcome uh, the challenges for and actually, you know, do good for, for their patient population.
I would say that of of a lot of folks that I've talked to that have had to overcome those challenges, you you and your team in particular in in up in Pennsylvania, getting that across the goal line, that was some I would say akin to a Herculean effort almost, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, we 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 were lucky in a lot of ways. We uh, so uh, the challenge in Pennsylvania is that um, there is a, a central kind of. Um, uh, uh, governance of what EMS can do. So the protocols come out from uh, out of Harrisburg from the Department of Health and they get uh, disseminated to different agencies. And so uh, if you were a critical care paramedic or a flight nurse, you could administer blood um, in the field. If you were just a, a, a regular paramedic, not on a critical care transport service, then uh, you were not allowed to. And so we thought that was pretty stupid because, you know, there's a lot of places where the medics are the ones that are seeing these patients. And so a group of us across the state actually came together to kind of um, propose the change to their protocols. And actually last November, um, we got that through. And so now it's allowed uh, in, in the state of Pennsylvania to um, for paramedics to administer blood. And that's really allowed a lot of services to say, hey, you know, this could help our our folk and they're looking at uh, our uh, different systems that have been doing and trying to bring those lessons home, including right here in Philly. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so there was a, an, an interesting thought that came to mind. I say it's interesting because of course I thought it was interesting, but um, there is this mentality that, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's enough. It's not advanced enough to get, to get blood far forward as, as, as out of, as far forward out of the hospital as possible. And that, that gives me this, this feeling that, you know, maybe we don't need a, and I wish Ben was on the conversation for this, but it does, does every big city or does every big hospital system need a, a physician go team, you know, to, to haul ass across city to, to give this thing that we have all proven that yeah. paramedics are a thousand percent capable of doing, uh, and that's administering blood. And, the internet and didn't that, agree with them, so he got cut off. Yeah. No. There's controversy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was was halted. He he uh, he just uh, doxed your internet connection, bud, from the ether. Ben is always listening. Yeah. Ben is always listening. All right, go on that diatribe um, again, so we can make it a real and uh, make sure he hears it on Instagram. So the concept of pushing uh, blood and basically beginning resuscitation at the i'm having problems again aren't i no you're good, you're good. Okay. having having beginning resuscitation as as early in the treatment you know uh access to you know as, as soon as in the treatment chain uh as possible has a, a a pretty good impact on the patient's outcome and we're we're doing that as places like philly and places like new orleans and san antonio we're doing this with paramedics with a couple of units of blood and the the, the i don't want to say the funny point but the the counterpoint to uh this to this desire to have you know physician staff qrvs on go teams to you know to haul ass across the city to do something that quite quite frankly could be could be left to to paramedics not that not that there's there's e equality or parity in skill and, and knowledge no um but uh, perhaps better utilize those paramedic resources yeah i think um you know again you have to look at systems so for example i was uh 
Uh, I used to respond quite regularly when I was in in the UK, uh, often to uh, major trauma and and sometimes like complex medical cases. And and part of the reason was you know what's allowed in the paramedic scope of practice in the UK. So uh, things like RSI were not um, uh, in the paramedic scope of practice. So a physician would. Uh, be called upon to to help with that, and then um, uh, even blood administration is still not in the uh, paramedic scope of practice in the UK, and so uh, critical care teams, which are often physician paramedic, are call, are called to do that. So that's one thing, and then and that's not all it, case across the United States. So there's several systems where you know the medics are are perfectly um, you know uh, are are trained to a degree that they uh, and are allowed by protocol to. Do drug-assisted intubations and uh, now administer blood and things like that. So, you know, for certainly for those things, um, I think you know, adding the the physician to the scene uh, doesn't routinely doesn't make sense. Um, but you know, there there are other opportunities uh, for the physician to add to what uh, is happening on scene. So. Certainly, I would say um, for, I'll take the example of uh, a complex extrication. So, uh, where it's uh, a prolonged uh, scene time, and they're struggling to uh, uh, to get this person out from whatever they're entrapped in. You know, a physician can add additional skill of um, you know more complex analgesia uh, and help with advanced airway management. Um, and maybe some advanced interventions, you know, if an amputation is needed or something like that. But I think the other flip side that sometimes people don't think about is the um, just the knowledge and experience that can be added to the scene. And I think this is especially true in larger EMS systems where, um, sure, everybody's kind of trained to a degree, but individually, that medic may come across a really bad trauma once a year, uh, just because of the vast number of people on the on the rigs. Um, and so, sure, they're great at what they do, but maybe they haven't seen that before. And maybe, you know, their adrenaline's pumping just a little bit too much and they're, uh, they're not really um, in the best position to be thinking as straight as they would be, say, in a training scenario. And so having a physician on scene there can help with the medical direction of the rescue. You know, perhaps you're so tunnel visioned into, okay, the only way we're going to get this person out is to amputate their leg. But no, maybe the physician comes on and says, hey, you know, maybe if I really sedate this guy appropriately, maybe even tube him here and control his um, pain, uh, and maybe that'll give you enough time and opportunity to be able to cut through whatever it is and get it off without us taking his leg off. And so this medically directed rescue can be a physician tool. Certainly the advanced interventions like um, uh, amputation and stuff, it, it warrants having a, a physician on there. That's certainly I don't think in any paramedic protocol that I've seen in the United States. Um, but even in the UK, I think I would say like eight times out of 10, my role was to say, hey, you're doing a great job. I agree with what you're thinking and how can I help you? Um, and it was more that reaffirming that, hey, I know you, you've read about this and you've probably thought about this, but you've never seen it and you're thinking things the right way. And it's just that additional person saying, yes, you're right. I'm here to support you and let's get this done. Um, and I think that 
in uh, in some scenes, and, and you guys can probably think of of seeing jobs that you've been on that you know having that reassurance in the middle of the night from another more seasoned person can go a long way to to making sure you're doing the right thing for your patients. So I think there's a lot of additional things that a physician, especially one with appropriate EMS training and and experience can kind of bring to the scene. And I think that's where in the United States, um, things can be really useful. Even with the GO team, it's like, I think a lot of the times they're brought out for things like having to do an amputation or something like that. But more often than not, they're they're doing things like uh, supplementing what the medics are already doing pretty well. And so, um, you know, there's, I think that's the way that you have to look at what physicians can bring to the field. You know, I love that. it's, it's, it's priceless. It's, it's interesting. Um, uh, and I, I've obviously stayed quiet uh, so far in this conversation. And um, uh, when I was reading your paper um, and we were, you know, and we'll go into, we, we haven't talked about spark teams yet. Right. Um, nope. Yeah. So, uh, after reading the paper and then I read it again, it just takes some notes. I couldn't help but think of uh, a part. So uh, I'm holding up, if you're listening, I'm holding up this thing right here. I don't know if you guys can see it. So uh, this is probably the, the mother document of what we do, right? Accidental death of disability, the neglected disease of modern society. Uh, it's a massive paper that really is considered, at least from my understanding, the, the parent document that kind of has laid the groundwork for what everything we do today. And um uh, it was published in 1966, and I, I just want to read an excerpt here. Um, uh, so while most ambulance calls involve non-emergency cases, the justification for speeding, the use of sirens, and violations of local traffic uh, regulations is debatable. It is a consensus of representatives of the Joint Action Program that more injuries and deaths are produced by improper control of ambulances than would be. Okay, so that part doesn't, work, uh, doesn't matter. Helicopters have proved so successful as ambulances in combat theaters that they should be adopted for selected use in this country. They have proven uh, to be necessary to move physicians and equipment to the accident site and to evacuate casualties from major highways. Um, so, uh, you know, I was thinking about it and especially like where we are, you know, in Maryland, I think it's a it, it's such an obvious thing to have that resource. Now, uh, on the other side of things, I've certainly been on scenes where physicians were not appropriately, uh, 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 their affect wasn't appropriate. Their, um, their, um, their treatment that they were providing, or the, the, the affect that you described of, Hey, what can I do to help? That's a very specific, uh, type of physician. And, uh, we're blessed in Maryland, uh, and in the surrounding areas to have, you know, folks like you and other leaders that we have, but that's certainly not the case. Uh, so there has to be more effort and your, your paper, uh, you know, this, this review article describes it perfectly that there has to be proper training on the physician end. Um, because, uh, you know, I was listening to a lecture last week from, uh, our stadium as medical director about, uh, triage, right? Who, who's the best person to do triage? It's not a physician. It's not a paramedic. It's an EMT. And just like how you were talking about, um, tunnel vision due to lack of, experience, there's also tunnel visioning because of too much experience. Um, so uh, uh, that's, it's crucial that when we deploy these teams, uh, and I know we're going to get into them, there has to be appropriate training. And when these um, uh, physicians are being deployed, there has to be the appropriate training and there has to be the appropriate oversight, which, uh, I mean, I think we all know that, you know, it's not just physicians. Uh, the oversight thing can be one of the first things to fail. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. So I think 
And I would argue to say, I'm not sure how the setup is is now in Maryland or other places that incorporate physicians, but, um, you know, a lot of places that had physicians just just say, hey, let's call up the local hospital, see who's working and bring them out. And, you know, you've seen pictures on the news of people showing up to like complex industrial scenes wearing scrubs and uh, dance dos and, uh, and and like wanting to be. And of course, you know, us as physicians are, you know, we're all got faith egos and stuff. And uh, we think that we're great. And But the reality is, you know, if you don't understand um, scene, uh, how a scene works, what the chain of command is on scene, uh, you know, who's wearing the white helmet, who's got the other color helmets, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and you decide that, okay, only your word is gonna, gonna be, uh, taken, then you, you, you're not the person to go out on scene. Um, and so it, it behooves you that if you decide that in your system, you're going to bring physicians to the scene from time to time, probably worth having a cadre of physicians that, um, one will get the experience of going out to scene and two can get trained to to not only know what to do in that environment but also interact appropriately with other people and that requires then multidisciplinary team working and so you know bringing uh docs to the fire academy or taking them out to some usar training or something like that so that they actually then have to crawl into a hole and and go and an IV in or tube someone or something like that, you know, that provides the level of immersion in their training that is then that they can then build on when they're actually called out to be on scene because you don't want them to become a liability on scene, right? And so that's unfortunately how when physicians are uh, brought out, I think still in a lot of places that only have defined teams of this that, um, you know, I think they've become more of a liability than anything else, but they don't and them not seeing themselves as liabilities because they like their training it adds even more danger i think uh to the scene and it, it uh adds more to an already stretched bandwidth of the pre-hospital team uh, and so i think you, you should look at who who should who should respond and who should not um you know there's a, a level of fitness that might be required there's a, a level of uh uh, collegiality, and that's required to be able to work with teams that you you, you probably have never interacted with before. And um, there's a, a level of understanding of what happens on its on a complex trauma scene um, in the pre-hospital setting that uh, uh, that you should know. And so that's where um, you know I talk about it in the paper, having a select group of, of folk that can maintain experience and and maintain their skills is really important. What's been your uh, your your most your most favorite uh, EMS and physician cross training event that you've uh, <laughs> that you've done? Yeah, we've uh, so uh, there's a there's a really cool course that is run out of the UK. It's called the Attack Course, which mm -hmm. uh, they do a really great job. They essentially take over this um, uh, uh, this uh, essentially like a military base over over a weekend that they. They create all these uh, uh, really interesting scenarios uh, where people can go through, which includes like, uh, you know, uh, uh, going into a deep, dark hole and, and trying to find the victims. And, and they have a they have a train that's uh, a train carriage that's like um, partially on its side. So as soon as you get in, you get disoriented because it's like you're trying to climb between the seats to get to the patient. So I thought that was really 
a, a cool interaction. Um, and here in the States, um, I've had uh, some uh, experience kind of just observing uh, how our local USAR team kind of gets trained. And I thought that was really useful because that brings together a, a really sometimes a diverse group of folk uh, who then kind of have to come together pretty quickly and try and uh, address a, a complex scene as well as the direct patient management. So um, I like those kind of um, training sessions for sure. Excellent. So we'll, if you guys are cool with it, we'll switch gears back to uh, resuscitation strategies uh, for these patients, you know, a, a non-compressible torso or hemorrhage. You, you can't get the gauze. You can't get direct pressure on these bleeding vessels. We can we can push blood all you know up into the degree that it's that it's all ended up back in the chest. What are some other um, resuscitation strategies that we can use outside of the hospital? Things like um, or or even just offer your thoughts on things like permissive hypotension, adjunctive therapies, TXA, calcium, and all that. And yeah, I, I wanted. If to I don't have up, blood. What's number two? I wanted to bring Josh. up permissive hypotension. Because mm -hmm. I, I had a question, and maybe you can address this at the same time. There's a yeah. talk of, okay, so permissive hypertension, we usually are told 80 to 90 systolic. Um, and there's some people out there that are referencing, hey, I think we can go lower into the 70s, maybe 60s. And the inverse of that is, well, then you have a map that is well below 65. And are we actually seeing, is that actually a good thing? to drop it that low when we're not going to be perfusing correctly what we do have. Yeah. So if you can tie that into talking about permissive hypertension. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. It's one that's been debated for a long time now. And I think, so first of all, you know, we're always drilled into this map of 65 and that's kind of more coming out of the medical resuscitation sepsis literature that that number kind of comes out of. And so um, the trauma world, I think is primarily kind of guided by uh, systolic goals Um but really, I think, uh, you know, an arbitrary number personally for me is uh, is challenging to you. So say someone who's young and fit and healthy, um, you know, a systolic goal of 80 or 90 might be fine. Um, but you get how much elderly trauma are we seeing? So we're seeing a lot more than we have before. Right. And all these patients yeah. are um, hypertensives at baseline. And so. 90 for them is much lower than they're ever used to. You know, these people live at 140, 150. And so their permissive hypotension might be 110. And so I think you need to adapt your your goal to the patient. Two, how do you tell if they're perfusing appropriately? So you can use clinical signs. So, uh, you know, some people will titrate their resuscitation to a central pulse. And so, you know, if they've got a strong femoral pulse, then that's the goal that they want to, if they're talking to you, then that's the goal that you're, then you know that their brain's perfusing. Um, and so that might be a goal that you're using as opposed to an arbitrary number. So that might be another thing. And then people talk about, you know, what if uh, they have a concomitant traumatic brain injury? Because we know that the lower blood pressures malperfuse the brain, and that's the secondary injury that will happen to an already injured brain. So, you know, there's some school of thoughts that use, again, those arbitrary numbers, but they quote, like, if you have a traumatic brain injury on top of your torso hemorrhage, then you should be going for a higher systolic goal, maybe 110, as opposed to the 90. So my, my bottom line on that is that look at um, measurable factors of perfusion, central pulse, uh, alertness level, uh, 
factor in the age of the patient and then factor in um, whether they have a, a brain injury or not. Uh, so the other couple of things that you mentioned were TXA. So TXA uh, in the States, for some reason, has been super delayed where the rest of the world is using it for a long time. Uh, the CRASH-2 trial came out uh, more than a decade ago that showed like worldwide, except the United States where they didn't recruit, um, it showed benefit in trauma. And so a lot of protocols have already utilized that. Um, certainly more and more hospitals, I think, are utilizing it. And now we've had data, um, the STAMP trial in particular, which came out of Pittsburgh, uh, that showed that pre-hospital TXA, uh, the earlier you give it essentially is the better. So, uh, you know, the TXA typical, uh, you know, the, the, the packaging says give it within three hours of injury, but actually the later you give it from injury, closer to the three hour mark is much worse than if you give it closer to the zero hour mark. So again, that goes to the marginal gains. Uh, so giving that early is better. And actually the stamp trial suggested using two gram initial bolus in your severely injured patient. So, and some systems are going to that. I know the military in their uh, TCCC training has, has kind of advocated for that too. Um, Calcium is an interesting one. I think it's gotten more and more attention over the last few years, um, and there's some a lot. Of, there's a some really interesting papers that have come out um, of it, looking at calcium levels for patients who arrive in hemorrhagic shock. And the, a recent paper actually showed that you know more than half of patients, when they took a blood gas sample from them, were shown to be hypocalcemic. And so hypocalcemia was uh, independently kind of associated with worsening mortality, and, and that's really. Um, because it's kind of in uh, a lot of the processes that are responsible for uh, how effectively we clot. Um, and so uh, people talk about now this lethal diamond instead of the lethal triad where hypocalcemia is kind of the fourth element of it. But actually hypocalcemia feeds into the other three. So if you're hypothermic, um, your calcium metabolism changes. If you're uh, um, uh, acidotic, again, your calcium kind of how it, uh, how it works on, at the cellular level changes. So it's all kind of fed into all of that. I, thinking about calcium early is, is really useful to, to, to look at. But on the flip side, there was another recent paper that actually showed that, um, you know, hypercalcemia is just as bad as hypocalcemia. So Say you have 50% uh, of patients who are hypocalcemic on arrival to the trauma center. Oh, should we just give empirically calcium to everybody? But, you know, that could mean that one in two patients becomes hypercalcemic and that you've actually done them harm. Mm -hmm. So maybe your system has point of care testing. You could do that. You could think about it. But I would say if your patient's like crumping, probably, uh, the the benefit of giving an amp of calcium is is probably there, and so certainly if you're you know you've given the blood and they're still kind of circling the drain, um, you can add the calcium to it as as another adjunct. So uh, that's my thoughts on kind of using pre-hospital calcium. Do you think uh, it's important that we distinguish between you know trauma-associated hypocalcemia and transfusion-associated hypocalcemia? Yeah. Um, so. So these patients that they measured the uh, uh, the low calcium in was uh, even like regardless of whether they gotten any blood in the pre-hospital setting. So even in systems that didn't have pre-hospital blood, they still showed that there was a significant percentage that had hypocalcemia on arrival. So 
it, it points to the fact that the process of bleeding itself, and it might be just the fact that they, that's causing them to become hypocalcemic. So, but it's an important point that you raise because those places that are using um, uh, component therapy in particular, um, especially once you're giving like uh, more than four units, you need to be, the, the practice in the hospital is usually when after your fourth unit, you give an amp calcium because the citrate in the, in, in the packed red cells um, does uh, lower your calcium by chelation. Uh, we're not quite sure how much that equates to whole blood. Um, some people say after, similarly, after four units of whole blood, maybe you should be thinking about it, but we're not quite sure because there's much less citrate in whole blood than there is in uh, uh, component uh, red cells. Um, so that's something that's probably needs somebody to uh, look at it more closely. But certainly if you're giving more than four units pre-hospital, and I think there's there's not that many systems that are probably carrying more than two units at a time, but if you are, then certainly think about it after that fourth unit. Josh, I cut you off, man. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, we're good. I had a uh, a question uh, that came up while you guys were talking about permissive hypotension, and I have this um, this analogy or this metaphor that I that I think of when I think about this. It's kind of like when you're when you're fighting a wildland fire, you're setting a back burn and you're using fire to fight fire. It's almost like you're using shock to fight shock in this case um it's something i mean just by definitions right um is there a point or is there a dose of permissive hypotension at which case uh we should probably start resuscitating to go back the other direction and i'm talking about a dose in time not necessarily low systolics or maps yeah so you know are you uh, how long are you going to sustain them at a low pressure, I think, is the question you're asking. I guess, especially yes, yeah. that have longer transport times, um, or even, you know, if they're on scene for a long time. And I think, um, you know, certainly as we, if you look at how um, uh, resuscitation works in the hospital, so a patient arrives in the emergency department, while they're having their evaluation and their initial resuscitation, you want them to be low. And the, the theory is that the higher they go, they'll, they'll pop any clot that's there. And so that's why you want to keep them low. But actually, right. Um, that doesn't extend into the point where they get into the operating room because at that point you're not um, you're wanting that perfusion of uh, of organs uh, so actually achieving that resuscitation whilst kind of controlling the bleeding definitively so the evidence kind of has really been looking at um, lower blood pressures before they uh, get into more hands-on resuscitation and I think. Probably, uh, you know, as you get into the longer transport times, you want to be thinking about kind of maintaining certainly your um, uh, your cerebral perfusion uh, pressure. And I think, again, you can use that as your guide um, in that time to make sure that they're resuscitated enough that they're mentating. Um, and I think if as long, you know, if they're mentating their brain or if they're perfusing their brain then probably they're perfusing the other important organs as well and so that can sure. be your guide there so don't run them all at 70 for like your 40 minute transport back to wherever you need to go you know i'm glad that you talked about transport so in the critical care phase the critical care transport phase so we're we've gone out to xyz hospital and we're coming back to you pen or we're going out to the shore and we're coming back to uh, shock trauma. Um, does hype, does permissive hypotension, should that even be in the, uh, in our resuscitation strategy, post-op or post-damage control resuscitation at the sending facility? 
I don't think so. I think if they've like, so if you're picking up a patient who they've operated on and they've achieved a degree of hemorrhage control, um, I think you can be a little bit more liberal as long as you're sure that there's not any um, active uh, bleeding ongoing. So if they struggle to kind of get bleeding control, that's one thing. But a lot of times what you're picking up then is um, a patient who's remains in shock and is probably more coagulopathic as opposed to um, actively having surgical bleeding. So it's almost like the medical bleeding, some people say, where they're oozing out of their IV sites and things like that mm -hmm. because they, they can't clot now. And so I think you do a disservice to them um, to uh, to uh, keep them at uh, too low a pressure uh, and use that permissive hypotension concept because at that point you're trying to recover what has been damaged. And so more than likely because of the hypovolemia, they developed a kidney injury to, because of uh, poor perfusion there. So you want to make sure that they're, you know, they're, you know, you're trying to restore that. Uh, gut perfusion and other organs as well. They may have a shock liver or something. And so you want to maintain enough of a perfusion to all those organs as part of the ultimate resuscitation. Um, the other thing I think that's, that we're learning more and more about, and people have been kind of focusing on this uh, in different spheres, is that um, especially in the super shock trauma patient, the heart probably takes a, a bit of a hit too. So there's a mm. degree of myocardial dysfunction that probably happens to these patients. And so if you're in the critical care transport sphere, um, you might want to be thinking about, you know, how do how does the heart look? And so more and more places are um, using uh, point of care ultrasound in their transport teams. And so it might be an opportunity to quickly look at the heart and see actually, you know, maybe I don't need to continue pumping blood or blood products into this person, but maybe I need to be thinking about what drips I'm using for this patient in their transport to support their heart um, to get through uh, to get through this. And this is like evolving um, kind of uh, our understanding of uh, the hemorrhagic shock patient that actually maybe they do have a significant degree of myocardial dysfunction that happens from the, uh, not only the bleeding, but also the inflammatory hit that happens as a result of major trauma. Yeah, and depending on how, how toxic they were, right? So the heart, yeah, the yeah. heart doesn't like that either. Yeah, but totally. you hit, you took one of my questions away from me was, uh -huh. uh, you know, do we, at what point do we start thinking, you know, beyond our ABCs stabilize this kind of thing and we start moving into more involved therapies like, you know, at this point in the game, do crystalloids have a role? Um, I would argue that if they're still coagulopathic, maybe, maybe not. Um, but what about, and I'm shamelessly doing research for a presentation in Alabama, but um, what is, what are your, what is the role of vasopressors at this point? Because yeah. they're probably intubated. They're probably, you know, sedated on a shitload of propofol and stuff like that. I mean, you almost, it's almost necessary to move that patient, correct? You're not going to do that on blood alone, right? I'm yeah. so happy you brought that up, Cody, real quick, just because this is one <laughs> yeah. of my big questions that I have had for you. Because, uh, you know, diving into the physiology of uh, shock and specifically like endothelial damage due to like hypoxia, uh, I that was my question. It seems like a very... Uh, you know, it's like a, uh, what do you call it? The seesaw, like it's a teetering thing, right? So I imagine that uh, giving a catecholamine too early is going to certainly exacerbate and not be good uh, because we're not getting oxygen to where it needs to be and that we're going to perpetuate that uh, that injury. But on the other end, 
sometimes we might need that increased cardiac function. We might need that uh, vasoconstriction a little bit after for those prolonged uh, shocky patients that have the, those, you know, inflammatory markers running rampant. So I, I'm very excited for this question. I want to get, get your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think um, it goes back to what we understand about um, end stage hemorrhagic hemorrhage shock. Um, so, uh, you know, for years, people have asked the question, you know, should we be giving pressors to trauma patients? And by and large, you know, a lot, there have been a lot of studies out there that have kind of shown that, you know, there's no real benefit to giving pressors early, or the traditional pressors that we talk about, which is usually levofed, norepinephrine for people not familiar with levofed, um, uh, to, to these patients. Um, and, and the studies were looking at, you know, after and before and after um, appropriate volume resuscitation. And overall, they said, yeah, that's a bad idea. You know, these patients do a lot worse when you give them pressors of that sort. Um, so, but if you go back and look at the pathophysiology of hemorrhagic shock, um, especially as they kind of progress in it, you, you kind of uh, understand um, what's happening a little bit more. So as people kind of progress in their shock state, uh, typically we think of uh, uh, the body's response to hemorrhage as vasoconstriction. Um, but uh, towards, the, just before they, they get into the kind of irreversible death stage, they start vasodilating actually. Um, and so they, um, the reason for that is, uh, uh, is several fold. So there is uh, a release of nitric oxide um, so that we know that's a, a vasodilator. Um, there is actually competition at the receptors for um, uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. So uh, as part of your fight or flight response, you already have a huge amount of circulating epinephrine and norepinephrine in your system. So that innate um, uh, uh, presser that's there is fighting for receptors to get into the cell to do what it needs to do. And so it makes sense, right? If the, if the uh, norepinephrine that's already in your system can get in, then what's the point of adding external norepinephrine to it? Uh, but the third kind of process that people have really focused on more recently, uh, and this was really demonstrated well in animal studies, was that there is a deficiency of vasopressin. Um, and so the uh, vasopressin, remember, is released by your brain in response to hypovolemia. It acts on your vessels to cause vasoconstriction, and it tells the kidneys to hold back on your fluid so that your volume is kind of restored to a degree. So um, vasopressin in animal models of hemorrhagic shock um, actually showed mortality benefit, and that was even when compared to other traditional pressors. And so there was a recent study that actually came out of Penn um, looking at uh, the use of vasopressin early in hemorrhagic shock. Um, so they looked at patients who've gotten like the start of a massive transfusion and they added um, uh, X amount of vasopressin. Those patients actually um, showed a decreased blood product requirement. Um, it was pretty small trials, so they couldn't really show mortality benefit, but nevertheless kind of showed um, you didn't need as much blood for them. And that I think is a win in and of itself. Um, uh, not only because you're giving someone else's blood to this patient, so all the consequences of that, but also um, kind of the volume that's associated with it, et cetera. So, so, vasop so, go ahead. Ahead. Yeah. Uh, so vasopressin may have a little bit of a longer onset time, correct? And is it is it prudent to maybe start with something else to maybe get some tension in the vascular system and, and while you're waiting for that vasopressin to get started, bolus yeah. dose pressors or something to that effect? 
Yeah, so I think that's where we uh, can kind of talk about, you know, how much is the heart kind of contributing to this? Mm -hmm. And so you might be thinking about, you know, maybe giving some push dose pressors might be useful, especially if you have the added benefit of being able to look at the heart. So if you have some skill in doing point of care ultrasound, looking at the heart really, and you don't have to be an expert at it, just look at the heart and see what it's doing. Um, and so if it's like not really squeezing well, then maybe you give some push dose epi um, and uh, that can help kind of get the heart moving a little bit more as opposed to just flooding it with more volume, whether that's blood or, um, or crystalloid or whatever you have at hand. Because if the heart's not functioning, then, you know, your pressure is not going to get better and the heart's just going to get worse. So, um, so certainly I think maybe small doses of push dose epi in that instance might be beneficial as well while you're, while you're getting your other stuff up. And then in the, after the bleeding is controlled and they're in that shock state that's persisting, that's when I think, um, you know, using your pressors over volume resuscitation is probably going to be better. Um, certainly you want to be correcting any coagulopathy, but it doesn't mean that you're letting the product without really thinking about it. Um, uh, but rather, you know, titrating, um, vasoactive medicines as well as administering volume to kind of uh, maintain their perfusion, uh, their cardiac function, as well as the vascular tone. Hey, and yes. I, real quick, I just want to, I don't mean to cut you off Cody, but for the folks that are listening, that might be lost right now. Right. Because oh, let's be real, we, we are in the weeds and we recognize we're in the weeds. But uh, I really want to state that this is the where the current research is. Is that correct, sir? Like, I mean, w we are in the land of we don't know what the correct answer is. And we're kind of hypothesizing. And I imagine there's a lot of current work being done. So uh, if you're lost a little bit, that's OK, because uh, the people that are doing the research are probably a little bit lost, too. Uh, and that, that that's kind of the, the really cool part of all this, that we're really talking about the cutting edge stuff. So, Cody, I'll give it back to you. I just want to put that snippet in there real quick. No, I think it's 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 timely. Uh, the, the title of my talk is maybe it depends. And these are such great points, such great nuggets here. Doc, we, are, we so appreciate you spending the time with us on this. Uh, I, I want to take it one step further and get a little bit deeper into the woods uh i get it like i'm in the tall grass or the real short snout at this point but um so shock induced endotheliopathy or shine um it, it's something that i i can't find a ton of research on uh, i mean there, there's some out there and it's well described but what we do about it is maybe it depends right um, how do at our, you know, at the, at the critical care transport level, uh, medics and nurses, how do we know, or how would we know, Hey, we're in this situation and we need to talk, we need to talk about how we're escalating things or, uh, you know, what are next steps, maybe discussions to have with, um, with our medical directors and say, doc, I think this is where we're at. And as we, as those of us that are, that are aware of this know that, our, our pressors aren't going to do much in this situation, right? Yeah. And I think it's a, as you say, it's, it, it, it's a challenge to do. And, uh, and in some ways I think we, we get kind of um, biased somewhat to wanting to do uh, what we think is, is the right thing. Even when we start to see signs that this is now 
perhaps an unsalvageable kind of case. And so, mm -hmm. and I think when you're, you're starting to talk about the severe kind of endotheliopathy, then it's, it's almost to the point where, you know, despite the kitchen sink, you're not going to get better. So I think, um, you know, in some ways it might be, you know, taking the time to look at the course of events so far, what if the, what is the sending facility actually done so far for the patient and maybe spending a minute or two just to evaluate the patient before you pick them up and making a, uh, a joint discussion decision, you know, what is there, what are we going to add in the transport and what are we going to do differently for these patients than, um, if you've already tried your your level best to try and uh, reverse the the shock that's now become irreversible. And so, but you're right. I think it's difficult to un understand when you reach that point sometimes. And especially if you're dealing with a young, uh, otherwise healthy patient, you still want to try and, you know, throw a second kitchen sink at them and, and continue the care. Um, and ultimately, I think this becomes a, a case by case basis, but, you know, probably talking to the sending facility physician, as well as your medical director at that point, just to discuss and at least bring it up would be useful. Um, and, and because if you don't think about it, then you're just kind of going on automatic and just doing things that might not be ultimately beneficial to the patient. Yeah, sure. You could take what once was an ECMO candidate but with a, with that one, 2% chance and, you know, with your best intentions, take it out, you know, yeah. remove that, remove that chance from them. Right. And real quick, yeah. I just want to review what uh, an endotheliopathy is because maybe people don't know what endothelial endothelial cells are. So we're just talking about the, this, that layer, that initial initial barrier in our blood vessels, that what cells are lining that, that that's what we're talking about for folks that may not, you know, no, I, I don't want to lose people on that, but no, thank you. That's and great. it's where your receptors live, right? Moose? Yeah. Yeah, well, receptors uh, live everywhere, but sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. so at this point, the problem that we're talking about with with shine or or endotheliopathy, endotheliopathy is the the vasculature or the body is now chemically and mechanically unable to to respond or to do what it's what we're what we need it to do. So I would, the and, way I describe it is like if you're watching Lord of the Rings and the orcs are all over the walls. Yeah, the integrity of that wall is broken. Uh, there is there is no regulation. The gate doesn't work. Orcs are everywhere. Yeah. The one dude's jumping off the one tower. Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why doc, that's why Doc is referring to it as irreversible shock. Yeah. This is vasoplegia and and um, distributive shock in this state is what we all call we we all know as the final common pathway. Yeah, Gondor's right, calling to, for aid and death. no one's coming. No one's coming. Yeah, yeah we're, we're yeah, <laughs> it's a a, a party four. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Before. Yeah, not have this conversation and not talk about the spark teams okay because that's a cool cool name i've already yeah. said it a couple times i just yeah so uh, we'll 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 kick it back uh to the to the spark teams you know, doc, un unpack the concept and uh and kind of uh your experience with them or or the perfect world situation or scenario for them and just yeah. define the term too if you don't mind yeah sure so spark came out kind of came out the concept of um uh, from the military again of uh, advanced resuscitative care. So when we were talking about earlier about those uh, the mortality benefit that happened over the the two decades of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, um, you know the the group of folk that were most likely to still have potentially preventable death were those with non-compressible torso hemorrhage. So the concept for advanced resuscitative care 
um, or ARC was uh, to administer blood at point of injury and provide some form of advanced hemorrhage control. We talked about um, Rebo in particular, but really there's other opportunities like the junctional tourniquets and things like that that you could potentially use, but some form of that. So that's the concept of ARC. And so as we put this paper together for civilian world, we wanted to kind of balance the fact that the majority of folk um, who are injured probably don't need the advanced resources of, say, a physician or an advanced paramedic uh, team that goes out that has these skills that go out to things because I think that would not use your resources the best way. So we uh, added the SP, Selective Pre-Hospital. So um, for select cases, this advanced resuscitative care team would be able to adopt that um, uh, scoop and control approach and provide those meaningful interventions and achieve those marginal gains and and uh, bring that back uh, to uh, whatever uh, facility you're going to. And in some ways, you know, in some states, maybe that looks like the GOAT team, like in Maryland, in some other places, say uh, Cincinnati, where they're using physicians in the field as well for advanced pre-hospital care. The concept is, um, you know, identify the patients who might benefit from it, and then target your clinical resource um, and skills to that patient. And that's uh, uh, in the diagram that we showed earlier, they intervene at the point of uh, between uh, kind of the, the initial EMS response and before transport. And so, uh, so that they can provide some on-care on support and also uh, en route care. Um, and so that's the concept of it. And so wh where have people been doing that? So I always kind of, Bring the example of uh, air ambulance services in uh, in the UK and Europe, where, uh, and I would say in, in London in particular, and this goes back to um, Mustafa, where you were talking about um, uh, helicopters being a great way to bring uh, the the skills to the scene. If you think about it, you know, uh, on the face of it, you might think, why in a dense urban environment like London do they have a helicopter? And so the whole reason for their, or a big reason for their helicopter is not to transport the patient back to the hospital, but it's to bring the resource to the scene quickly. And so you can imagine trying to drive in the traffic of London in the middle of the day, it's really challenging if you're in a car and lights and sirens to be able to do that. But the helicopter is able to um, bring that advanced resuscitative care team to the patient very quickly, and then they might choose another mode of transport to get back to the hospital. So you're essentially shortening the time to meaningful intervention again by bringing that team to the right set of patients. So then you have to bring it back even further. You know, how do you find the right set of patients? And that's, I think, where we really need to be thinking about how we're dispatching resources. And I think that's been a real, um, uh, like problem in a lot of systems. One again because of the disparate nature of um, uh, of dispatch centers and how they're set up. We talked about in Philly where police get the initial nine one one call and then kind of bring it on to um, to uh, medical services as as needed, uh, and that's perhaps too late. And then also, what is um, the experience of the uh, call taker? So uh, are they? Uh, uh, are they just following a script um, on on like a CAD system, and they're uh, they're just saying, okay, if they say this, then you're going to do this, uh, or are they thinking about what's happening? So if you look at these systems that are doing it well, 
in Europe uh, in particular, I would say uh, go, I went to their and looked at their dispatch centers. I looked at the dispatch centers in London and I looked at the dispatch centers in Paris where they have kind of these advanced uh, uh, teams. And they actually uh, rotate their clinicians through the dispatch center so that the uh, experienced clinician, and uh, in some cases it's a medic, in some cases it's a physician, is listening to the call. And again, you know, going back to experience matters, they can perhaps pick up the nuance of what's in the caller's voice or some particular mm. terms of, hey, this scene sounds like it's much more complex than what uh, what uh, might what someone with less experience might think about it, and I'm going to target my resource to this to this scene. And I think that's really been a key to the success because you could have the most advanced team in the world if you're sending them to the wrong place or too late, then they're no use, and so you're missing that window of opportunity to 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 make change. So. Um, that's uh, that's another element that we really should be looking at uh, improving upon. And I think we can, you know, as the technology improves, I think there's more and more ways to do that. You now have like apps where you can uh, um, send links to the 911 caller so that they can, you can tap into their video feed and actually look at the scene and say, hey, oh yeah, that looks pretty bad. So they might benefit from having this spark team go to them. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity that different systems can do to do that. Maybe it's the, uh, the um, uh, supervisor, the paramedic supervisor who makes the call that, uh, you know, actually for this call, we're gonna dispatch this resource um, and, uh, and utilize that. So depending on your system, you can, you can make it work. Um, uh, in, in several ways to be able to, to use that spark team. Good, Cody. Because I got a whole thing on this. So uh, go ahead, bud. <laughs> no, go for it. Uh, keep, yeah, drive so, on, man. This is, uh, th this is where I thought a lot about this, uh, this, this paper, right? So um, you mentioned the air ambulance service. And, and you guys, you, you do, you guys do, you, you certainly mentioned what I'm about to say um, in, in the article. Um, but I, I would argue that the bulk of this paper, right, that uh, your paper uh, is, dependent on what I'm about to talk about. And that's the funding. Let's be real. Like all of the clinical stuff, everything that we've done, I've talked about so far is imperative on elected officials and policymakers creating a sustainable environment where we can do this. Right. Um, so I guess my first question is uh, it, it, it's certainly good to use London as an example in terms of operations and how they do it. But certainly it's as soon as we try to uh, look at how they fund it, it, everything falls apart. So what are some, uh, what, what advice do you have for those policymakers? What advice do you have for the folks that are talking to the policymakers uh, to, you know, get this, you know, this ball moving? It's a common question. And I think it's a, it's a real important one because, you know, even, especially I think in the current environment, you know, there's a lot of EMS agencies that are struggling just to provide their routine care. And so, you know, being able to fund this becomes even more important. So let's look at the, uh, uh, the London example. And in fact, I would look at uh, the air ambulance services that are outside of London. Uh, all of them are receive no funding from the National Health Service, which is the government. Um, and they all receive their funding through charitable donations. 
And so you can imagine that, uh, you know, they do a, a lot of work trying to get those donations to provide their service and they're up and running 24 seven. So they're clearly getting that. And so that's partly by showing the public that they're a resource that's worth investing in. Um, so that's one way, but that's, you know, that relies on kind of that concept of, uh, community and things. And so <laughs> we know sometimes that can be a challenge. So, uh, you know, when you say you can't do this in the United States, I'll, I'll give another example where, um, in uh, Minneapolis, they decided that, uh, they would want to get people onto ECMO faster for out of hospital cardiac arrest. But again, they had so many different EMS systems, different healthcare systems that were, um, uh, kind of essentially, you know, in some ways competing as businesses for the pre-hospital work. So how do you get them together? So again, uh, there's a great paper that actually describes how this group of clinicians uh, went to city government, went to all these different EMS agencies and, and showed them that, you know, this was a benefit to do and actually got them to come together to be able to fund that service. Uh, what's the third way to do it? So look at Maryland. So if you get injured in the state of Maryland and uh, Maryland State Police comes to pick you up and takes you to shock trauma, you're not going to get a bill at the end of the day. Why? Because um, it's paid for through the three or four dollars that you pay every year to get your vehicle tag renewed. Um, and so that's a small cost that uh, provides huge benefit to the residents of, of the state of Maryland. Um, and, and so that's another way that you could fund uh, a service like that. Um, uh, so again, it, it requires a little bit of thinking outside the box, but I think there's a lot of examples around um, the country that uh, you could use to adapt to within your own system to be able to get the funding that uh, you need. And it might be a combination of three or four different ways to do that. So, um, you know, if you, if you want to do it and you, and you show that the data in particular, you know, people can't argue against data, right? So you show them that this is beneficial then, um, and you find a champion to help you with your cause, you can actually kind of move the needle on these things. Come on, Doc, you're on Instagram. You know, people are arguing against data all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I really appreciate that. Um, and the, um, I, I, and especially like in the, paper you talk about the et3 model the emergency triage treat and transport model that was rolled out I and mean, we, we all know how that ended but yeah. um i i think the way i think about it is it has to be a swiss cheese model right like there has there sure you can have a foundational funding source for, uh, like you mentioned for the maryland the ems operational fund model right um so the i think that we I, my frustration for this comes from the fact that I feel like we as an industry, not an industry, we as a profession, not just uh, paramedics or EMTs or physicians or everyone that deals with, you know, the 28 year old patient that just got hit by a car, everyone that's involved in that care, we are stuck in like third gear and we just can't move forward. It's not just trauma. It's not just medical stuff. It's not just like, you know, we are stuck. And, um, you know, for me, and I don't mean to bring this back to the whole paramedic practitioner thing, but we talk about reimbursement. We talk about like models of care where we, we have to have a middle ground between like the paramedics that we have functioning today and the physicians that will need to move out. 
I can't help but think that if we had a middle tier that was reimbursable, right? Uh, well, that was billable for lack of the issue. Um, if we had uh, federal funding that uh, provided for reimbursement, like you're talking about and programs that we're talking about, I think that would be good. The, the reason things are the way they are, and I've said this a million times on the podcast, is because people just like us, people just like us had the courage to move forward, right? Uh, and that's empowering because it, it allows us to feel that we can make this change, but then that change actually has to happen. And um, that's not necessarily a question. That's more of so just a comment and uh, and really a view into my frustrations, right? Of we Everything here in this paper says that we know what the right thing to do is. Yet where are we? Yeah. Well, you, when did you publish this? 2021, 2022? Yeah, it's been a... Years now, yeah. So, and, and don't be to be clear. A lot of the initial research you said was paid for in the price of our servicemen, right? Our servicemen and women, right? So, it, certainly, this was not free. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot of these lessons. Uh, you know, and I know we don't have the answers, but I mean, especially to the folks that are listening to this, you shouldn't be leaving this just you know thinking about it as another podcast you listen to. You should be listening to the, to this as how can I ma- move the needle forward? Yeah, uh, that's the point of what we why we do what we do here. Yeah. And, you know, there there are wherever you, you know, whenever you're trying to uh, bring about change, you know, you're fighting not only uh, process, but more importantly, you're fighting culture. Right. And so a lot of places saying, well, we've always done it this way and it seems to work. So why should we change? And, uh, you know, fighting culture is, uh, I'd say, 20 times more difficult than uh, anything else. Um, but. I would say there is something to um, one having someone who's going to stay and and champion things, champion change, and two is persistence. And if you're looking for a quick return on your investment, then perhaps this is not uh, perhaps you're not the right person to kind of tackle this because it will take a bit of time. Sometimes it takes much less, and sometimes it takes much more. I'll give you the example of. You know, there the, are change to uh, state protocol for pre-hospital blood in Pennsylvania. We thought it would take a long time to kind of do that. And it was like, um, uh, but actually, you know, there was a group of us that really kind of um, uh, got together really quickly to kind of put the data together for this. And we were did it at a time where we had a, where we aligned with the general thoughts of the state medical director. Um, and so that timing worked out. And perhaps, you know, if we'd done, tried to do this three years ago, maybe we wouldn't have been accessible or it would have been taken more time and, um, and vice versa. But again, it's, it requires you to one, have a cause that you are willing to champion and also the persistence to be able to to move forward with it. Um, uh, and, and that's where you ultimately will see. And, and if you're trying to change the whole system, then that's not the right thing. But if you've come to your medical director or your fire chief and say, hey, I just want to do this small change and see how it works, that can be the start to the, and now And then everybody's starting to do things that way. And they think, okay, now that we're done this, let's try this small step. And maybe it does take five years or whatever, um, but ultimately you're now changing culture. And and that's really kind of the approach that I think you should take with it, uh, regardless of uh, of what kind of model you're working in. 
because ultimately, you know, the, the, that cultural change, once it occurs, it is difficult to then, you know, once you start changing it, then it's difficult to stop it. Man, I love it. What a, what a note to, to end on. Huh? You know, once it, once you got the momentum, it's really hard to stop the train. Yeah. Wow. Moose, did you, did you have, did you have anything else for him? No, no, this was good. Uh, Josh, do you have any final thoughts for, uh, for no, Dr. Guys, you guys kind of said everything, honestly. This was great. Plain and simple. It was great. Great topic to bring up right now. Uh, and yeah, man. Cody, I'm going to let you take it out just because I don't have my video up now. But uh, <laughs> when we're ready, it's you, man. Uh, Doc Hassan, you know, uh, we appreciate you uh, uh, taking your time to talk to us about I mean, everything that we've talked about, all apparently all aspects of trauma care were on the agenda today. And, and I appreciate you, uh, you humoring us uh, of going a little bit off script and uh, just being so, so, so engaging with us uh, and answering these questions. Um, I, I see another podcast in your future if you're available. Um, and uh, man, I, I really appreciate it. And so for all our listeners out there, uh, you know, wherever you're at, whatever time of day um, that you're, you're taking this in, we appreciate you. Um, just as much as we appreciate Dr. Castle's time. And uh, Dr. Castle, where can folks find you out in the world? Uh, feel free to hit me up on uh, Twitter so, or X. Uh, it's at Resus1, R-E-S-U-S-O-N-E. Uh, that's probably going to be the best way to kind of get a hold of me. You can DM me um, or just tweet at me, and I'm uh, happy to get in touch with you or uh, Look me up on LinkedIn as well under my name. Uh, feel free to post regularly on there too. So uh, those are probably the two most reliable ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks again, Doc. And, and on behalf of the entire Alert Medic One team, uh, this is us signing off saying bye. Great. Thanks so much.